You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Recording by Jennifer Fournier, Centerville, Virginia, USA. Astounding Stories 16, April 1931, by Various. Four Miles Within, Chapter 1, The Monster of Metal. A strange spherical monster stood in the moonlight on the silent Mojave Desert. In the ghostly gray of the sand and sage and Joshua trees, its metal hide glimmered dully, an amazing object to be found on that lonely spot. But there was only pride and anticipation in the eyes of the three people who stood a little way off, looking at it, for they had constructed the strange sphere and were soon going to entrust their lives to it. "'Professor,' said one of them, a young man with a cheerful face and a likable grin, Let's go down now. There's no use waiting till tomorrow. It's always dark down there, whether it's day or night up here. Everything is ready. The white-haired Professor David Guinness smiled tolerantly at the speaker, his partner, Phil Holmes. I'm kind of eager to be off myself, he admitted. He turned to the third person in the little group, a dark-haired girl. What do you say, Sue? Oh, let's, father, came the quick reply. We'd never be able to sleep tonight anyway. As Phil says, everything is ready. Well, I guess that settles it, Professor Guinness said to the eager young man. Phil Holmes's face went aglow with anticipation. Good, he cried. Good. I'll skip over and get some water. It's barely possible that it'll be hot down there, in spite of your eloquent logic to the contrary. And with the words, he caught up a large jug standing nearby waved his hand, said, I'll be right back, and set out for the waterhole, situated nearly a mile away from their little camp. The heavy hush of the desert night settled down once more after he left. As his figure merged with the shadows in the distance, the elderly scientist murmured aloud to his daughter, You know, it's good to realize that my dream is about to become a reality. If it hadn't been for Phil, or, no, I really ought to thank you, Sue, you're the one responsible for his participation. And he smiled fondly at the slender girl by his side. Phil joined us just for the scientific interest and for the thrill of going four miles down into the earth, she retorted at once, in spite of the blush her father saw on her face. But he did not insist. Once more he turned, as to a magnet, to the machine that was his handiwork. The 15-foot sphere was an earth borer, Guinness's own invention. In it, he had utilized for the first time, for boring purposes, the newly developed atomic disintegrators. Many holes, equally spaced over the sphere, were the outlets for the dissolving ray. Most of them on the bottom, and alternating with them on the bottom and sides, were the outlets of powerful rocket propulsion tubes, which would enable it to rise easily from the hole it would presently blast into the earth. A small, tight-fitting door gave entrance to the double-walled interior, where, in spite of the space taken up by batteries and mechanisms, and an enclosed gyroscope for keeping the borer on an even keel, there was room for several people. The earth borer had been designed not so much for scientific investigation as the specific purpose of reaching a rich store of radium ore buried four miles below the Guinness Desert Camp. Many geologists and mining engineers knew that the radium was there, for their instruments had proven it often. But no one up to then knew how to get to it. David Guinness did first. 
the borer had been constructed in his laboratory in San Francisco, then dismantled and freighted to the little desert town of Palmdale, from whence Holmes had brought the parts to their isolated camp by truck. Strict secrecy had been kept. Rather than risk assistance, they had done all the work themselves. Fifteen minutes passed by, while the slight figure of the inventor puttered about the interior of the sphere, brightly lit by a detachable searchlight, inspecting all mechanisms in preparation for their descent. Sue stood by the door watching him, now and then turning to scan the desert for the returning fill. It was then, startlingly sudden, that there cracked through the velvet night the faint, distant sound of a gun, and it came from the direction of the waterhole. Sue's face went white, and she trembled. Without a word, her father stepped out of the borer and looked at her. "'That was a gun,' he said. "'Phil didn't have one with him, did he?' "'No,' Sue whispered. "'And, why, there's nobody within miles of here.' The two looked at each other with alarm and wonder. Then, from one of the broken patches of scrub that ringed the space in which the borer stood, came a mocking voice. "'Ah, you're mistaken, Sue,' it affirmed. "'But that was a gun.' David Guinness jerked around, as did his daughter. The man who had spoken stood only ten yards away, clearly outlined in the bright moonlight, a tall, well-built man, standing quite at ease, surveying them pleasantly. His smile did not change when old Guinness cried, "'Quade! James Quade!' The man nodded and came slowly forward. He might have been considered handsome, had it not been for his thin, mocking lips and a swarthy complexion. "'What are you doing here?' demanded Guinness angrily. And what do you mean? It was a gun. Have you— Easy, easy. One thing at a time, said Quade, still smiling. About the gun. Well, your young friend Holmes said he'd be right back. But I—I'm afraid he won't be. Sue Guinness's lips formed a frightened word. Why? Quade made a short movement with his left hand, as if brushing the query aside. "'Let's talk about something more pleasant,' he said, and looked back at the professor. "'The radium? And your borer, for instance? I hear you're all ready to go down.' David Guinness gasped. "'How did you know?' he began. But a surge of anger choked him, and his fists clenched. He stepped forward, but something came to life in James Quaid's right hand and pointed menacingly at him. It was the stubby black shape of an automatic.' "'Keep back, you old fool,' Quade said harshly. "'I don't want to have to shoot you.' Unwillingly, Guinness came to a stop. "'What have you done with young Holmes?' he demanded. "'Never mind about him now,' said Quade, smiling again. "'Perhaps I'll explain later. "'At the moment, there's something much more interesting to do. "'Possibly you'll be surprised to hear it. "'But we're all going to take a little ride in this machine of yours, Professor. Down. About four miles. I'll have to ask you to do the driving. You will, won't you, without making a fuss? Guinness's face worked furiously. Why, you're crazy, Quade, he sputtered. I certainly won't. No? asked Quade softly. The automatic he held veered around till it was pointing directly at the girl. I wouldn't want to have to shoot Sue, say, through the hand. His finger tightened perceptibly on the trigger. 
"'You're madman!' Guinness burst out. "'You're crazy! What's the idea?' "'In due time, I'll tell you. But now I'll ask you just once more,' Quade persisted. "'Will you enter that borer, or must I—' He broke off with an expressive shrug. David Guinness was powerless. He had not the slightest idea what Quade might be about. The one thought that broke through his fear and anger was that the man was mad and had better be humored. He trembled, and a tight sensation came to his throat at the sight of the steady gun trained on his daughter. He dared not trifle. "'I'll do it,' he said. James Quaid laughed. "'That's better. You always were essentially reasonable, though somewhat impulsive for a man of your age. The rash way you severed our partnership, for instance. But enough of that. I think we'd better leave immediately.' "'Into the sphere, please. "'You first, Miss Guinness. "'Must she come?' "'I'm afraid so. "'I can't very well leave her here all unprotected, can I?' Quade's voice was soft and suave, "'but an undercurrent of sarcasm ran through it. "'Guinness winced under it. "'His whole body was trembling with suppressed rage and indignation. "'As he stepped to the door of the earth-borer, "'he turned and asked, "'How do you know our plans? "'About the radium, the borer?' "'Quade told him. "'Have you forgotten,' he said, "'that you talked the matter over with me "'before we split last year? "'I simply had the laboratory watched, "'and when you got new financial backing "'from young homes and came here, "'I followed you. "'Simple, eh? "'Well, enough of this. "'Get inside. "'You first, Sue.' "'Trembling.' The girl obeyed, and when her father hesitated, Quade jammed his gun viciously into his ribs and pushed him to the door. Inside, he hissed, and reluctantly, hatred in his eyes, the professor stepped into the control compartment after Sue. Quade gave a last quick glance around, and, with gun ever wary, passed inside. The door slammed shut. There was a click as its lock shot over. The sphere was a sealed ball of metal. Inside, David Guinness obeyed the automatic's imperious gesture and pulled a shiny-handled lever slowly back, and the hush that rested over the Mojave was shattered by a tremendous bellow, a roar that shook the very earth. It was the disintegrating blast, hurled out of the bottom in many fan-shaped rays. The coarse gray sand beneath the machine stirred and flew wildly, the sphere vibrated madly, and then the thunder lowered in tone to a mighty humming, and the earth borer began to drop. Slowly it fell, at first, then more rapidly. The shiny top came level with the ground, disappeared, and in a moment there was nothing left but a gaping hole where a short while before a round monster of metal had stood. The hole was hot and dark, and from it came a steadily diminishing thunder. For a long time, no one in the earth borer spoke, didn't even try to, for though the thunder of the disintegrators was muted inside to a steady drone, conversation was almost impossible. The three were crowded quite close in the spherical inner control compartment. Sue sat on a little collapsible stool by the bowed, but by no means subdued, figure of Professor David Guinness, while Quade sat on the wire guard of the gyroscope, which was in the exact center of the floor. 
The depth gauge showed two hundred feet. Already the three people were numb from the vibration. They hardly felt any sensation at all, save one of great weight pressing inwards. The compartment was fairly cool, and the air good, kept so by the automatic air rectifiers and the insulation, which shut out the heat borne of their passage. Quade had been carefully watching Guinness's manipulation of the controls. When he was struck by a thought, at once he stood up and shouted in the elderly inventor's ear, "'Try the rockets! I want to be sure this thing will go back up!' Without a word, Guinness shoved back the lever controlling the disintegrators, at the same time whirling a small wheel full over. The thudding drone died away to a whisper, and was replaced by a sharper thundering, as the stream of the propulsion rockets beneath the sphere was released. A delicate needle trembled on a gauge, danced at the figure 200, then crept back to 190, 160, 140. Quade's eyes took in everything. "'Excellent, Guinness!' he yelled. "'Now, down once more!' The rockets were slowly cut. The borer jarred at the bottom of its hole. Again, the disintegrators droned out. The sphere dug rapidly into the warm ground, biting lower and lower. At ten miles an hour, it blasted a path to depths hitherto unattainable to man, sweeping away rock and gravel and sand, everything that stood in its way. The depth gauge rose to two thousand, then steadily to three and four. So it went on for nearly half an hour. At the end of that time, at a depth of nearly four miles, Quade got stiffly to his feet and once more shouted into the professor's ear. "'We ought to be close to that radium now,' he said. I think, but his words stopped short. The floor of the sphere suddenly fell away from their feet, and they felt themselves tumbled into a wild plunge. The drone of the disintegrators, hitherto muffled by the earth they bit into, rose to a hollow scream. Before the professor quite knew what was happening, there was a stunning crash, a shriek of tortured metal, and the earth borer rocked and lay still. The whole world seemed to be filled with thunder, when David Guinness came back to consciousness. He opened his eyes and stared up into a darkness to which it took him some time to accustom himself. When he did, he made out hazily that he was lying on the floor of a vast, dark cavern. He could dimly see its jagged roof, perhaps fifty feet above. There was the strong smell of damp earth in his nostrils. His head was splitting from the steady drone in his eardrums. Suddenly he remembered what had happened. He groaned slightly and tried to sit up, but he could not. His arms and legs were tied. Someone had removed him from the earth borer and bound him on the floor of the cavern they had plunged into. David Guinness strained at the rope. It was futile, but in doing so, he twisted his head around and saw another form, similarly tied, lying close to him. He gave a little cry of relief. It was Sue, and she was conscious, her eyes on his face. She spoke to him, but he could not understand her for the drone in his ears, and when he spoke to her, it was the same. But the professor did not just then continue his effort to converse with her. His attention was drawn to the borer, now dimly illuminated by its portable light, which had been secured to the door. It was right side up and appeared to be undamaged. The broad ray of the searchlight fell far away on one of the cavern's rough walls. He could just make out James Quaid standing there, his back towards them. He was hacking at the wall with a pick. Presently, he dropped the tool and wrenched at the rock with bare hands. A large chunk came loose. 
he hugged it to him and turned and strode back towards the two on the floor, and as he drew near, they could plainly see a gleam of triumph in his eyes. "'You know what this is?' he shouted. Guinness could only faintly hear him. "'Wealth! Millions! Of course, we always knew the radium was here, but this is the proof, and now we've a way of getting it out, thanks to your borer. All the credit is yours, Professor Guinness. You shall have the credit.' and I'll have the money. Guinness tugged furiously at his bonds again. You, you, he gasped. How dare you tie us this way? Release us at once. What do you mean by it? Quade smiled unpleasantly. You're very stupid, Guinness. Haven't you guessed by now what I'm going to do? He paused as if waiting for an answer, and the smile on his face gave way to a look of savage menace. For the first time, his bitter feelings came to the surface. Have you forgotten how close I came to going to jail over those charges of yours a year ago? He said. Have you forgotten the disgrace to me that followed? The stigma that forced me to disappear for months? You fool, do you think I've forgotten? Or that I'd let you? Quade, interrupted the older man. You know very well you were guilty. I caught you red-handed. You didn't fool anyone, except the jury that let you go. So save your breath, and if you've the sense you were born with, release my daughter and me. Why, you're crazy, he cried with mounting anger. You can't get away with this. I'll have you in jail within forty-eight hours once I get back to the surface. With an effort, Quade controlled his feelings and assumed his oily, sarcastic manner. "'That's just it,' he said, "'once you get back. "'How stupid you are. "'You don't seem to realize that you're not going back to the surface. "'You and your daughter,' Sue gasped, and her father's eyes went wide. "'There was a tense silence. "'You wouldn't dare,' the inventor cried finally. "'You wouldn't dare. "'It's rather large, this cavern.' Quade went on. You'll have plenty of room. Perhaps I'll untie you before I go back up, so you can't get away with it, shouted the old man, tremendously excited. Why, you can't possibly. Phil Holmes will track you down. He'll tell the police. He'll rescue us. And then... Quade smiled suavely. Oh, no, he won't. Perhaps you remember the shot that sounded from the waterhole? Well, when I and my assistant Juan... Heard Holmes say he was going for water. I told Juan to follow him to the waterhole and bind him, to keep him from interfering till I got back up. But Mr. Holmes is evidently of an impulsive disposition, and must have caused trouble. Juan, too, is impulsive. He is a Mexican. And he had a gun. I'm afraid he was forced to use it. I am quite sure Philip Holmes will not, as you say, track me down." David Guinness looked at his daughter's white face and horror-filled eyes, and suddenly crumpled. Humbly, passionately, he begged Quade to take her back up. "'Why, she's never done anything to you, Quade,' he pleaded. "'You can't take her life like that. Please, leave me if you must, but not her. You can't—' But suddenly the old man noticed that Quade was not listening. His head was tilted to one side as if he was straining to hear something else. Guinness was held silent for a moment by the puzzled look on the other's face, 
and the strange way he was acting. "'Do you hear it?' Quade asked at last, and without waiting for an answer, he knelt down and put his ear to the ground. When he rose, his face was savage, and he cursed under his breath. "'Why, it's a humming,' muttered Professor Guinness, "'and it's getting louder. It sounds like another borer,' ventured Sue. The humming grew in volume. Then, from the ceiling, a rock dropped. They were looking at the cavern roof and saw it start, but they did not hear it strike, for the ever-growing humming echoed loudly through the cavern. They saw another rockfall, and another. "'For God's sake, what is it?' cried Guinness. Wade looked at him and slowly drew out his automatic. "'Another earth-borer, I think,' he answered. "'And I rather expect it contains your young friend, Mr. Holmes. "'Yes,' "'Coming to rescue you.' For a moment, Guinness and his daughter were too astounded to do anything but gape. She finally exclaimed, "'But—but but then Phil's alive?' James Quaid smiled. "'Probably. For the moment. But don't let your hopes rise too high. The borer he's in isn't strong enough to survive a fifty-foot plunge.' He was shouting now, so loud was the thunder from above. "'And,' he added, I'm afraid he's not strong Reporting enough to, to Jennifer survive Fournier, it either. Centerville, Virginia, End USA. Chapter 1. Astounding Stories, 16, April 1931, by Various. Four Miles Within. Chapter 2. The Manhunt. When Phil Holmes started off to the waterhole, his head was full of the earth borer and the imminent descent. Now that the long-awaited time had come, he was at a fever pitch to be off and it did not take him long to cover the mile of sandy waste. His thoughts were far inside the earth, as he dipped the jug into the clear, cool water and sloshed it full. So the rope that snaked softly through the air and dropped in a loop over his shoulders came as a stark surprise. Before he knew what was happening, it had slithered down his arms and drawn taut just above the elbows, and he was yanked powerfully backward and almost fell but he managed to keep his feet as he staggered backward, and turning his head, he saw the dark figure of his aggressor, some fifteen feet away, keeping tight the slack. Phil's surprise turned to sudden fury, and he completely lost his head. What he did was rash, mad, and yet, as it turned out, it was the only thing that could have saved him. Instinctively, without hesitating one second, and absolutely ignoring an excited command to stand still, he squirmed face on to his aggressor, lowered his head, and charged. The distance was short. Halfway across it, a gun barked, and he heard the bullet crack into the water jug, which he was still holding in front of himself. And even before the splintered fragments reached the ground, he had crashed into the firer. He hit him with all the force of a tackling lineman, and they both went down. The man grunted as the wind was jarred out of him, but he wriggled like an eel, and managed to worm aside and bring up his gun. Then there was a desperate flurry of bodies in the coarse sand. Holmes dived frantically for the gun hand and caught it. But, handicapped as he was by the rope, he could not hold it. Slowly, its muzzle bent upward to firing position. Desperately, he wrenched the arm upwards, in the direction it had been straining to go, and the sudden, unexpected jerk doubled the man's arm, and brought the weapon across his chest. For a moment, there was a test of strength, as Phil lay chest to chest over his opponent, the gun blocked between. 
Then the other grunted, squirmed violently, and there was a muffled explosion. A cry of pain cut the midnight air, and with insane strength Holmes's ambusher fought free from his grip, staggered to his feet, and went reeling away. Phil tore loose from the rope and bounded after him, never feeling, at the moment, his powder-burned chest. And then he halted in his tracks. A great roar came thundering over the desert. At once he knew that it came from the earth borer's disintegrators. The sphere had started down without him. He stood stock still, petrified with surprise, facing the sound, while his attacker melted farther and farther into the night. And then, suddenly, Phil Holmes was sprinting desperately back towards the Guinness camp. He ran until he was exhausted, walked for a little while his legs gathered more strength and his laboring lungs more air, and then ran again. As the minutes passed, the thunder lessened rapidly into a muffled drone, and by the time Phil had panted up to the brink of the hole that gaped where but a little time before the sphere was standing, it had become but a distant purr. He leaned far over and peered into the hot blackness below, but could see nothing. Phil knelt there silently for some minutes, shocked by his strange attack, bewildered by the unexpected descent of the borer. For a time, his mind would not work. He had no idea what to do. But gradually, his thoughts came to order and made certain things clear. He had been deliberately ambushed. Only by luck had he escaped, he told himself. If it hadn't been for the water jug, he'd now be out of the picture. And on the heels of the ambush had come the surprising descent of the earth borer. The two incidents coincided too well. The same mind had planned them. And two men, at least, were in on the plot. It suddenly became very clear to him that the answer to the puzzle lay with the man who had ambushed him. He would have to get that man. Track him down. Phil acted with decision. He got to his feet and strode rapidly to the deserted Guinness shack, horribly quiet and lonely now in the bright moonlight. In a minute, he emerged with a flashlight at his belt and a rifle across his arm. Once again, he went over to the new black hole in the desert and looked down. From far below still came the purr, now fainter than ever. His friend, the girl he loved, were down there, he reflected bitterly, and he was helpless to reach them. Well, there was one thing he could do. Go man-hunting. Turning, he started off at a long lope for the waterhole. Ten minutes later he was there, and off to the side he found the marks of their scuffle, and small, black blotches that could be nothing but blood. The other was wounded, could probably not get far. But he might still have his gun, so Phil kept his rifle handy and tempered his impatience with caution, as he set out on the trail of the widely spaced footprints. They led off towards the nearby hills, and in the bright moonlight Phil did not use his flashlight at all, except to investigate other round black blotches that made a line parallel to the prints. As he went on, he found his quarry steps coming more closely together, becoming erratic. Soon they showed as painful drags in the sand, a laborious hauling of one foot after the other, Phil put away his light and advanced very cautiously. He wondered, as he went, who in the devil was behind it all. The radium-finding project had been kept strictly secret. 
not another soul was supposed to know about the earth borer and its daring mission into the heart of the earth yet obviously someone had found out and whoever it was had laid at least part of his scheme cunningly an old man and a girl cannot offer much resistance he phil would have been well taken care of had it not been for the water jug so far there were at least two in the plot the man who had ambushed him and the unknown who had evidently kidnapped both professor and suginus but there might be still more there might be friends nearby of the man he was tracking the fellow might have reached them and warned them that the scheme hadn't gone through that phil was loose they could very easily conceal themselves alongside their partner's tracks and train their rifles on the tracker the trail was leading up into one of the canyons in the cluster of hills to the west for some distance he followed it up through a slash of black below the steep moonlit heights of the hills to each side and then suddenly he vaguely made out the forms of two huts just ahead immediately he stooped low and went skirting widely off up one side he proceeded slowly with great caution his rifle at the ready at any moment he knew the hush might be split by the cracks of waylaying guns warily he advanced along the narrow canyon wall above the huts no lights were lit and the place seemed unoccupied he was debating what to do next when his attention was attracted to a large dark object lying in the canyon trail some twenty yards from the nearest hut straining his eyes in the inadequate moonlight he saw that it was the outstretched figure of a man his quarry his ambusher phil dropped flat fearful of being seen keeping as best he could in the shadows fearing every moment to hear the sharp bark of a gun he crawled forward it took him a long time to approach the sprawled figure but he wasn't taking chances when within twenty feet he rose suddenly and darted forward to the man's side his rapid glance showed him that the fellow was completely out and another quick look around failed to show that anyone else was watching so he returned to his examination of the man it was the ambusher all right a mexican he was still breathing though his face was drawn and white from the loss of blood from a wound under the blood-soaked clothing near his upper right arm a hasty search showed that he no longer had his gun so phil satisfied that he was powerless for some time to come cautiously wormed his way towards the two shacks there was something sinister in the strange silence that hung over them one was of queer construction a windowless square high box of galvanized iron the other was obviously a dwelling place carefully phil sneaked up to the ladder then rifle ready he pushed its door open and sent a beam of light stabbing through the darkness of the interior there was no one there only two bunks a table chair a pail of water and some cooking utensils met his view he crept out toward the other building come close phil found that a dun-colored canvas had been thrown over the top of it making an adequate camouflage in daytime the place was about twenty feet high he prowled around the metal walls and discovered a rickety door again gun ready he flung it open the beam from his flash speared a path through the darkness and he gasped at sight of what stood revealed there inside was a long bullet-like tube of metal 
the pointed end uppermost and the bottom, which was flat, toward the ground. It was held in a wooden cradle and was slanted at the floor. In the bottom were holes of two shapes, rocket tubes and disintegrating projectors. It was another earth borer. Phil stood frozen with surprise before this totally unlooked-for machine. He could easily have been overcome had the owner been in the building, for he had forgotten everything but what his eyes were staring at. He started slowly around the borer, found a long, narrow door slightly ajar, and stepped inside. This borer, like Guinness's, had a double shell, and much the same instruments, though the whole job was simpler and cruder. A small instrument board contained inclination, temperature, depth and air purity indicators, and narrow tubes led to the air rectifiers. But what kept Holmes's attention were the wires running from the magneto to the mixing chambers of the disintegrating tubes. "'The fools!' he exclaimed. "'They didn't know how to wire the thing. "'Or else,' he added after a moment, "'didn't get around to doing it.' He noticed that the projectile's interior contained no gyroscope, though he thought none would be needed, for the machine, being long and narrow, could not change keel while in the ground. Here he was reminded of something. Stepping outside, he estimated the angle the borer made with the dirt floor. Twenty degrees. And pointed southwest, he exclaimed aloud. This borer would come close to meeting the professor's, four miles under our camp. At once, he knew what he would do. First, he went back to the other shack and got the pail of water he had noticed and took this out where the Mexican lay outstretched. He bathed the man's face and the still slightly bleeding bullet wound in his shoulder. Presently, the wounded man came to. His eyes opened and he stared up into a steel mask of a face in which two level black eyes bored into his. He remembered that face remembered it all too well. He trembled, cowered away. No, he gasped, as if he had seen a ghost. No, no. Yes, I'm the man, Holmes told him firmly, menacingly, the same one you tried to ambush. He paused a moment, then said, Do you want to live? It was a simple question, frightening in its simplicity. "'Because if you don't answer my questions, I'm going to let you lie here,' Phil went on coldly, "'and that would probably mean your death. "'If you do answer, I'll fix you up so you can have a chance.' "'The Mexican nodded eagerly. "'I talk,' he said. "'Good,' said Phil. "'Then tell me who built that machine. "'Señor Quaid, Señor James Quaid. "'Wade.' Phil had heard the name before. Of course, he said. Guinness's old partner. I not know, the Mexican answered. He hired me with much money. He buy this machine inside, and we put him together. But he could no make him work. It take too long. We watch. Here old man go down tonight. And the greaser stopped. And so he sent you to get me, while he kidnapped the old man and his daughter and forced them under the ground in their own borer, Holmes supplied, and the other nodded. But I only mean to tie you, he blurted, gesturing weakly. I no mean shoot. No, 
No. All right, forget it, Phil interrupted. And now tell me what Quaid expects to do down there. I not know, senor, came the hesitant reply. But, but what? The young man jerked. Reluctantly, the wounded Mexican continued. Senor Quaid, he, I think he don't like this old man. I think he leave him and the girl down below. Then he come up and say they keeled going down. Phil nodded grimly. I see, he said, voicing his thoughts. Then he would say that he and Professor Guinness are still partners, and the radium ore will belong to him. Very nice. Very nice. He snapped back to action, and without another word hoisted the Mexican onto his back and carried him into the shack. There he cleansed the wound, rigged up a tight bandage for it, and tied the man to one of the cots. He tied him in such a fashion that he could reach some food and water he put by the cot. "'You leave me like this?' the Mexican asked. "'Yes,' Phil said, and started for the door. "'But what are you going to do?' Phil smiled grimly as he flung an answer back over his shoulder. "'Me?' I'm going to fix the wiring on those disintegrators in your friend Quaid's borer. Then I'm starting down after him. He stopped and turned before he closed the door. And if I don't get back, well, it's just too bad for you. And so, a little later, once more the hushed desert night was cleft by a furious bellow of sound. It came, this time, from a narrow canyon. The steep sides threw the roar back and back again and the echoes swelled to an earth-shaking blast of sound. The oblong hut from which it came rocked and almost fell. Then, as the noise began to lessen, teetered on its foundations and half-slipped into the ragged hole that had been bored inside. The descent was a nightmare that Holmes would never forget. Quade's machine was much cruder and less efficient than the sphere David Guinness had designed. Its protecting insulation proved quite inadequate, and the heat rapidly grew terrific as the borer dug down. Phil became faint, stifled, and his body oozed streams of sweat, and the descent was also bumpy and uneven. Often he was forced to leave the controls and work on the mechanisms of the disintegrators when they faltered and threatened to stop. But in spite of everything, the needle on the depth gauge gradually swung over to three thousand, and four, and five. After the first mile, Holmes improvised a way to change the air more rapidly, and it grew a little cooler. He watched the story the depth gauge told with narrowed eyes, and as it reached three miles, inspected his rifle. At three and a half miles, he stopped the borer, thinking to try to hear the noise made by the other, but so paralyzed were his eardrums from the terrific thunder beneath, it seemed hardly any quieter when it ceased. His plans were vague. They would have to be made according to the conditions he found. There was a coil of rope in the tube-like interior of the borer, and he hoped to find a cavern or cleft in the earth for lateral exploring. He would stop at a depth of four miles, where he should be very near the path of the professor's sphere. But Phil never saw the needle on the gauge rise to four miles. At three and three quarters came sudden catastrophe. He knew only that there was an awful moment of utter helplessness when the borer swooped wildly downwards 
and the floor was snatched sickeningly from under him. He was thrown violently against the instrument panel, then up toward the pointed top, and at the same instant came a rending crash that drove his senses from him. End of chapter 2 Recording by Jennifer Fournier, Centerville, Virginia, USA Astounding Stories, 16, April 1931 By Various Four Miles Within Chapter 3 You Haven't the Guts Just as I thought, said James Quaid in the silence that fell when the last echoes had died away and the splinters of steel and rock had settled. You see, Professor, this earth borer belongs to me. Yes, I built one, too. But I couldn't, unfortunately, get it working properly. That is, in time to get down here first. After all, I'm not a scientist, and remembered little enough of your borer's plans. It's probably young Holmes who's dropped in on us. Shall we see? David Guinness and his daughter were speechless with dread. Quaid had trained the searchlight on the borer, and by turning their heads they could see it plainly. It was all too clear that the machine was a total wreck. It had pitched over onto one side, its shell cracked and mangled irreparably. Grotesque pieces of crumpled metal lay all around it. Its slanting course had tumbled it within fifteen yards of the sphere. In silence, the old man and the girl watched Quaid walk deliberately over to it, his automatic steady in his right hand. He wrenched at the long, narrow door, but it was so badly bent that for a while he could not get it open. At last it swung out, however, and Quaid peered inside. After a moment, he reached in and drew out a rifle. He took it over to a nearby rock, smashed the gun's breech, then flung it useless aside. Returning to the borer, he again peered in. Sue was about to scream from the torturous suspense when he at last straightened up and looked around at the white-faced girl and her father. "'Mr. Holmes is tougher than I'd thought possible,' he said with a thin smile. "'He's still alive.' And, as Sue gasped with relief, he added, "'Would you like to see him?' He dragged the young man's unconscious body roughly out on the floor. There were several bad bruises on his face and head, but otherwise he was apparently uninjured. As Quaid stood over him, playing idly with the automatic, he stirred and blinked, and at last, with an effort, got up on one elbow and looked straight at the thin lips and narrowed eyes of the man standing above. He shook his head, trying to comprehend, then muttered hazily, "'Your... your Quaid?' Quaid did not have time to answer for Sue Guinness cried out, "'Phil, are you all right?' Phil stared stupidly around, caught sight of the two who lay bound on the floor, and staggered to his feet. "'Sue!' he cried, relief and understanding flooding his voice. He started towards her. "'Stand where you are!' Quade snapped harshly, and the automatic in his hand came up. Holmes peered at it and stopped but his blood-streaked face settled into tight lines, and his body tensed. "'You'd better,' continued Quade. "'Now tell me what happened to Juan.' Phil forced himself to be calm. "'Your pal, the greaser,' he said cuttingly. "'He's lying on a bunk in your shack. He shot himself. 
playing with a gun. Quade chose not to notice the way Phil said this, but a little of the suave self-confidence was gone from his face as he said, "'Well, in that case, I'll have to hurry back to the surface to attend to him. But don't be alarmed,' he added more brightly. "'I'll be back for you all in an hour or so.' At this, David Guinness struggled frantically with his bonds and yelled, "'Don't believe him, Phil! He's going to leave us here to starve and die! He told us so just before you came down!' Quade's face twitched perceptibly. His eyes were nervous. "'Is that true, Quade?' Holmes asked. There was a steely note in his voice. "'Why, no, of course not,' the other said hastily, uncertain whether to lie or not. "'Of course I didn't.' Phil Holmes looked square into his eyes. He bluffed. "'You couldn't desert us, Quade. You haven't the guts. You haven't the guts.' His face and eyes burned with the contempt that was in his words. It cut Quade to the raw, but he could not avoid Phil's eyes. He stared at them for a full moment, trembling slightly. Slowly, by inches, he started to back toward the sphere, then suddenly he ran for it with all his might, Holmes after him. Quade got to it first, and inside, as he yanked in the searchlight and slammed and locked the door, he yelled, "'You'll see, you damn pup! You'll see!' And there was the smothered sound of half-maniacal laughter. Phil threw all his weight against the metal door, but it was hopeless, and he knew it. He had gathered himself for another rush when he heard Guinness yell, "'Back, Phil! Back! He'll turn on the side disintegrators!' Mad with rage as the young man was, he at once saw the danger and leaped away, only to almost fall over the professor's prone body. With hurrying, trembling fingers, he untied the pair's bonds, and they struggled to their feet, cramped and stiff. Then it was Phil who warned them, "'Back as far as you can! Hurry!' He grabbed Sue's hand and plunged toward the uncertain protection of a huge rock far in the rear. At once he made them lie flat on the ground. As yet the sphere had not stirred nor emitted a whisper of sound, though they knew the man inside was conning the controls in a fever of haste to leave the cavern. But they hadn't long to wait. There came a sputter, a starting cough from the rocket tubes beneath the sphere. Quickly they warmed into life, and the dully glimmering ball rocked in the hole it lay in. Then a cataract of noise unleashed itself. A devastating thunder roared through the echoing cavern as the rockets burst into full force. A wave of brilliant orange-red splashed out from under the sphere, licked back up its sides, and seemed literally to shove the great ball up towards the hole in the ceiling. Its ascent was very slow. As it gained height, it looked save for its speed, like a fantastic meteor flaming through the night, for the orange plumage that streamed from beneath lit the ball with dazzling color. A glowing sphere, it staggered midway between floor and ceiling, creeping jerkily upwards. "'He's not going to hit the hole!' shouted Guinness. The bore had not risen in a perfectly straight line. It jarred against the rim of the hole, and wavered uncertainly, Every second the roar of its rockets, swollen by echoes, rose in a savage crescendo. The faces of the three who watched were painted orange in the glow. The sphere was blind. 
the man inside could judge his course only by the feel. As the three who were deserted watched, hoping ardently that Quade would not be able to find the opening, the left side rockets spouted lances of fire, and they knew he had discovered the way to maneuver the bore laterally. The new flames welded with the exhaust of the main tubes into a great fan-shaped tail, so brilliant, and shot through with other colors that their eyes could not stand the sight except in winks. The borer jerked to the right, but still it could not find the hole. Then the flames lessened for a moment, and the borer sank down, to rise again a moment later. Its ascent was so labored that Phil shouted to Professor Guinness, "'Why so slow?' And the inventor told him that which he had not seen for the intolerable light. "'Only half his rockets are on!' This time the sphere was correctly aimed, however, and it roared straight into the hole. Immediately the fierce sound of the exhaust was muffled, and in a few seconds only the fiery plumage shooting down from the ceiling showed where the machine was. Then this disappeared, and the noise alone was left. Phil leaped forward, intending to stare up, but Guinness's yell halted him. Not yet! He might still use the disintegrators! For many minutes they waited, till the muffled exhaust had died to a drone. There was a puzzled expression on the professor's face as the three at last walked over and dared peer up into the hole. Far above, the splash of orange lit the walls of the tunnel. "'That's funny,' the old man muttered. "'He's only using half the rockets, about ten. I thought he'd turn them all on when he got into the hole, but he didn't. Either they were damaged in the fall, or Quade doesn't see fit to use them.' "'Half of them are enough.' said Phil bitterly, and put his arm around the quiet girl standing next to him. Together, a silent little group, they watched the spot of orange die to a pinpoint, watched it waver, twinkle, ever growing smaller, and then it was gone. Gone, back to the surface of the earth, to the normal world of reality, only four miles above them, a small enough distance on the surface itself, and yet it might have been a million miles, so utterly were they barred from it. The same thought was in their minds, though none of them dared express it. They were thinking of the serene desert, and the cool wind, and the buttes, and the high hills, placid in the moonlight, of the hushed rise of the dawn, the first flush of the sun that was so achingly lovely on the desert, the sun they would never see again, buried in a lifeless world of gloom four miles within, and buried alive, and not alive for long. But that way lay madness. Phil Holmes drove the horrible thoughts from his brain, and forced a smile to his face. "'Well, that's that,' he said in a voice meant to be cheerful. The dim cavern echoed his words mockingly. With the earth borer gone, the man-made machine that had dared break a solitude undisturbed since the earth first cooled, the great cavern seemed to return to its awful original mood. The three dwarf humans became wholly conscious of it. They felt it almost a living thing, stretching vastly around them, tightening its unheard spell on them, its smell of moldy earth and rocks down which water slowly dripped, filled their nostrils, and somehow added to their fear. As they looked about, their eyes became accustomed to the dim, eerie, phosphorescent illumination. They saw little worm-like creatures 
now and again appear from tiny holes between stalagmites in the jagged floor. And, as Phil wondered in his mind how long it would be before they would be reduced to using them for food, a strange, mole-sized animal scraped from the darkness and pecked at one of them. As it slithered away, a writhing shape in its mouth, Holmes muttered bitterly, A competitor. Vague, flitting forms haunted the gloom among the stalactites of the distorted ceiling, hints of the things that lived in the terrible silence of this nether world. Here, time had paused, and life had halted in primate form. A little moan came from Sue Guinness's pale lips. She plucked at her arm. A sickly white worm, only an inch long, had fallen on it from the ceiling. Oh, she gasped. Oh. Phil drew her closer to him and walked with her over to Quade's wrecked borer. Let's see what we've got here, he suggested cheerfully. The machine was over on its side, the metal mangled and crushed beyond repair. Nevertheless, he squeezed into it. Stand back, he warned. I'm going to try its rockets. There was a click of broken machinery, and that was all. Rockets gone, Phil muttered. He pulled another lever over. There was a sputter from within the borer, then a furious roar that sent great echoes beating through the cavern. A cloud of dust reared up before the bottom of the machine, whipped madly for a moment, and sank as the bellow of sound died down. Sue saw that a rocky rise in the floor directly in front of the disintegrators had been planed off levelly. Phil scrambled out. The disintegrators work, he said, but a lot of good they do us. The borers hopelessly cracked. He shrugged his shoulders, and with a discouraged gesture cast to the ground a coil of rope he had found inside. Then suddenly he swung around. Professor, he called to the old figure, standing bowed beneath the hole in the ceiling. There's a draft blowing from somewhere. Do you feel it? Guinness felt with his hands a moment and nodded slowly. Yes, he said. It's coming from this way, Sue said excitedly, pointing into the darkness on one side of the cavern. And it goes up the hole we made in the ceiling. Phil turned eagerly to the old inventor. It must come from somewhere, he said, and that somewhere may take us toward the surface. Let's follow it. We might as well, the other agreed wearily. His was the tone of a man who has only a certain time to live. But Phil was more eager. While there's life, there's hope, he said cheerfully. Come on, Sue, Professor. And he led the way forward toward the dim, distorted rock shapes in the distance. The roof and sides of the cavern angled down into a rough, tunnel-like opening from which the draft swept. It was a heavy air, weighted with the smell of moist earth and lifeless water and a nameless, flat, stale gas. They slowly made their way through the impeding stalagmites, surrounded by a dark blur of shadows, the ghostly, phosphorescent light illuminating, well, only the few rods around them. Utter silence brooded over the tunnel. Phil paused when they had gone about seventy-five feet. "'I left that rope behind,' he said, "'and we may need it. I'll return and get it, and you both wait right here.' With the words, he turned and went back into the shadows. He went as fast as he could, not liking to leave the other two alone. But when he had retrieved the rope and tied it to his waist, 
he permitted himself a last look up as he passed under the hole in the ceiling, and what he saw there tensed every muscle in his body and made his heart beat like mad. Again, there was a tiny spot of orange in the blackness above. "'Professor!' he yelled excitedly. "'Sue, come here! The sphere's coming back!' There was no doubt about it. The pinpoint of light was growing each second, with the flame of the descending exhausts. Guinness and his daughter ran from the tunnel, and, guided by Phil's excited ejaculations, hurried to his side. Their eyes confirmed what his had seen. The earth borer was coming down. But, Guinness said, bewilderedly, those rockets were enough to lift him. This was a mystery. Even though ten rockets were on, ten tiny spots of orange flame, the sphere came down swiftly. The same force which sometime before had lifted it slowly up was now insufficient. The roar of the tubes rose rapidly. Get back, Phil ordered, remembering the danger, and they all retreated to the mouth of the tunnel, ready to peep cautiously around the edge. Holmes's jaws were locked tight with grim resolution. Quade was coming back, he told himself exultantly. This time he must not go up alone. This time— but his half-formed resolutions were idle. He could not know what frightful thing was bringing Quade down, what frightful experience was in store for them all. End of chapter 3 Recording by Jennifer Fournier, Centerville, Virginia, USA Astounding Stories, 16, April 1931 By Various Four Miles Within, Chapter 4 Spawn of the Cavern In a crescendo of noise that stunned their ears, the earth-borer came down. Tongues of fire flamed from the hole, speared to the ground, and were deflected upward, cradling the metal ball in a wave of flame. Through this fiery curtain, the machine slowly lowered to the floor, where a shower of sparks spattered out, blinding the eyes of the watchers with their brilliance. For a full minute, the orange glowing sphere lay there, quivering from the vibration. Then the exhausts died, and the wave of flame wavered and sank into nothingness. While their eardrums continued the thunder, the three stared at the borer, not daring to approach, yet striving to solve the mystery of why it had sunk despite the upthrust of ten rocket tubes. As their eyes again became accustomed to the familiar phosphorescent illumination, pallid and cold after the fierce orange flame, they saw why and their eyes went wide with surprise and horror. A strange mass was covering the top of the earth borer, something that looked like a heap of viscid, whitish jelly. It was sprawled shapelessly over the round upper part of the metal sphere, a half-transparent, loathsome stuff, several feet thick in places. And Phil Holmes, striving to understand what it could be, saw an awful thing. It's moving! he whispered, unconsciously drawing Sue closer. There's, there's life in it. Lazy quiverings were running through the mound of jelly, pulsings that gave evidence of its low organism. They saw little ripples of even beat run over it, and under them steady, sluggish convulsions that told of life, that showed, perhaps, that the thing was hungry, and preparing to move its body in quest of food. It was alive, unquestionably. The boar lay still, but this thing moved internally, 
of itself. It was life in its lowest, most primate form. The mass was mind, stomach, muscle, and body all in one, stark and raw before their startled eyes. Oh, God, Phil whispered through the long pause, it can't be real. Protoplasm. A monster amoeba, David Guinness's curiously cracked voice said. Just as it exists on the surface, only microscopically. Primate life. The lock of the earth borer clicked. Phil gasped. Quade is coming out, he said. A little cry of horror came from Sue, and the metal door opened. James Quade stepped through, automatic in hand. He was fresh from the light inside, and he could not see well. He was quite unconscious of what was oozing down on him from above, of the flabby heap that was carefully stretching down for him. He peered into the gloom, looking for the three he had deserted, and all the time an arm from the mass above crept nearer. Sue Guinness's nerve suddenly gave, and she shrieked, but Quade's ears were deaf from the borer's thunder, and he did not hear her. It was when he lifted one foot back into the sphere, probably to get out the searchlight, that he felt the thing's presence. He looked up, and a strange sound came from him. For seconds he apparently could not move, stark fear rooting him to the ground, the gun limp in his hand. Then a surge ran through the mound of flesh, and the arm, a pseudopod, reached more rapidly for him. It stung Quade into action. He leaped back, brought up his automatic, and fired at the thing once, then three times more. He, and each one of the others, saw four bullets thud into the heap of pallid matter and heard them clang on the metal of the sphere beneath. They had gone right through its flesh, but they showed no slightest effect. Quade was evidently unwilling to leave the sphere. Jerking his arm up, he brought his trigger finger back again. A burst of three more shots barked through the cavern, echoing and re-echoing. The man screamed an inarticulate oath as he saw how useless his bullets were, and hurled the empty gun at the monster, which was down on the floor now, and bunching its sluggish body together. The automatic went right into it. They could all see it there, in the middle of the amorphous body, while the creature stopped, as if determining whether or not it was food. Quade screwed his courage together in the pause, and tried to dodge past to the door of the sphere, but the monster was alert. Another pseudopod sprang out from its shapeless flesh, sending him back on his heels. The feeler had all but touched Quade, and with the closeness of his escape, the remnants of his courage gave. He yelled and turned and ran. He ran straight for the three who watched from the tunnel mouth, and the mound of shapeless jelly came fast on his trail. It came in surging rolls, like thick fluid oozing forward. It would have been hard to measure its size, for each moment it changed. The only impression the four humans had was that of a wave of half-transparent matter that one instant was a sticky ball of viscid flesh and the next a rapidly advancing crescent whose horns reached far out on each flank to cut off retreat. By instinct, Phil jerked Sue around and yelled at the professor to run, for the old man seemed to be frozen into an attitude of fearful interest. Bullets would not stop the thing. Could anything? Holmes wondered. He could visualize all too easily the death they would meet if that shapeless, naked, protoplasmic mass overtook 
and flowed over them. But he wasted no time with such thoughts. They ran, all three, into the dark tunnel. Quade caught up with them quickly. Personal enmity was suspended before this common peril. They could not run at full speed, for a multitude of obstacles hindered them. Tortuous ridges of rock lay directly across their path, formations that had been whipped in some mad, eon-old convulsion, and then, through the ages, remained frozen into their present distortion. Black pits gaped suddenly before them, half-seen stalagmites, whose crystalline edges were razor-sharp, tore through their flesh. Haste was perilous, where every moment they might stumble into an unseen cleft and go pitching into awful depths below. They were staking everything on the draft that blew steadily in their faces. Phil told himself desperately that it must lead to some opening. It must. But what if the opening were a vertical, impassable tunnel? He would not think of that. Old David Guinness tired fast, and was already lagging in the rear, when Quade gasped hoarsely, "'Hurry! It's close behind!' Surging rapidly at a constant distance behind them, it came on. It was as fast as they were, and evidently untiring. It was in its own element. Obstacles meant nothing to it. It oozed over the jagged ridges that took the humans precious moments to scramble past, and the speed of its weird progress seemed to increase as theirs faltered. It was a heartless mass, driven inexorably by primal instinct toward the food that lay ahead. The dim, phosphorescent illumination tinged its flabby tissues a weird white. The passage they stumbled through narrowed. Long, irregular spheres of stalactites hung from the unseen ceiling. Others, the dripping of ages, pronged up from the floor, shredding their clothes as they jarred into them. One moment they were clambering uphill, slipping on the damp rock. The next they were sliding down into unprobed darkness, reckless of where they would land. They were aware only that the water-odorous draft was still in their faces, and the hungry mound of flesh behind. "'I can't last much longer,' old Guinness's winded voice gasped. "'Best leave me behind. I—I I might delay it.' For answer, Phil went back, grabbed him by the arm, and dragged his tired body forward. He was snatching a glance behind to see how close the monster was, when Sue's frightened voice reached him from ahead. "'There's a wall here, Phil, and no way through!' and then Holmes came to it. It barred the passage, and was apparently unbroken. Yet the draft still came. "'Search for where the draft enters,' he yelled. "'You take that side,' and he started feeling over the clammy, uneven surface, searching frantically for a cleft. It seemed to be hopeless. Quade stood staring back into the gloom, his eyes looking for what he knew was surging towards them. His face had gone sickly white. He was trembling as if with fever." and he sucked in air with long, racking gasps. "'Here! I have it!' cried the girl suddenly at her end of the wall. The other three ran over and saw, just above her head, a narrow rift in the rock, barely wide enough to squirm through. "'Into it!' Phil ordered tersely. He grasped her, raised her high, and she wormed through. Quade scrambled to get in next, but Holmes shoved him aside and boosted the old man through. Then he helped the other. A second after he'd swung up himself, a wave of whitish matter rolled up below, hungry pseudopods reaching for the food it knew was near. It began to trickle up the wall. The crack was narrow and jagged, utterly black. 
Phil could hear Quade frantically worming himself ahead, and he wondered achingly if it would lead anywhere. Then a faint, clear voice from ahead rang out. "'It's opening up!' Sue's voice. Phil breathed more easily. The next moment Quade scrambled through. Dim light came, and they were in another vast, ghostly-lit cavern. The crack came out on its floor level. Guinness was resting near, and his daughter had her hands on a large boulder of rock. "'Let's shove it against the hole,' she suggested to Phil. "'It might stop it.' "'Good, Sue, good!' he exclaimed. And at once all four of them strained at the chunk, putting forth every bit of strength they had. The boulder stirred, rolled over, and thudded neatly in front of the crack, almost completely sealing it. There was only a cleft of five inches on one side." but their expression of relief died in their throats. A tiny trickle of white appeared through the niche. The amorphous monster was compressing itself to a single stream, thin enough to squeeze through even that narrow space. They could not block it. They had nothing to attack it with. There was nothing to do but run, and hope for a chance to double back. As nearly as they could make out, this second cavern was as large as the first— they could dimly see the fantastic shapes of hundreds of stalactites hanging from the ceiling. Clumps of stalagmites made the floor a maze which they threaded painfully. The strong, steady draft guided them like a radio beacon, leading them to their only faint hope of escape and life. Guinness, very tired, staggered along mechanically, a heavy weight on Phil's supporting arm. James Quaid ran here and there in frantic bursts of speed. Sue was silent but the hopelessness in her eyes tortured Phil like a wound. His shirt had long since been ripped to shred. His face, bruised in the first place by the bore he had crashed in, now was scratched and bloody from contact with rough stalagmites. Then, without warning, they suddenly found among the rough walls on the far side of the cavern the birthplace of the draft. It lay at the edge of the floor, a dark hole, very wide, black, sinister and clammy from the draft that poured from it it pierced vertically down into the very bowels of the earth it was impassable james quade crumpled at the brink it's the end he moaned we can't go farther it's the end of the draft the hole blocked their forward path completely they could not go ahead in seconds it seemed the slithering that told of the monster's approach sounded from behind Sue's eyes were already fixed on the awful, surging mass, when a voice off to one side yelled, "'Here! Quick!' It was Phil Holmes. He had been scouting through the gloom and had found something. The other three ran to him. "'There's another draft going through here,' he explained rapidly, pointing to an angled crevice in the rocky wall. "'There's a good chance it goes to the cavern where the sphere and the hole to the surface are. Anyway, we've got to take it.' I'd better go first, after this. And you, Quade, last. I trust you less than the monster behind. He turned and edged into the crack, and the others followed as he had ordered. Quickly, the passageway broadened, and they found the going much easier than it had been before. For perhaps ten minutes they scrambled along, with the draft always on their backs, and the blessed, though faint fire of hope kindling again. In all that time they did not see their pursuer once, and the hope that they had lost it brought a measure of much-needed optimism to drive their tired bodies onward. They found but few time-wasting obstacles. 
If only the tunnel would continue right into the original cavern. If only their path would stay clear and unhindered. But it did not. The sound of Phil's footsteps ahead stopped, and when Sue and her father came up, they saw why. A river, Phil said. They were standing on a narrow ledge that overhung an underground river. A fetid smell of age-old, lifeless water rose from it. Dimly, at least fifty feet across, they could see the other side, shrouded in vague shadows. The inky stream beneath did not seem to move at all, but remained smooth and hard and thick-looking. They could not go around it. The ledge was only a few feet wide, and blocked at each side. "'Got to cross,' Phil said tersely. Quade, sickly-faced, stared down. "'There... there might be other things in that water,' he gasped. "'Monsters!' "'Sure,' agreed Phil contemptuously. "'You'd better stay here.' He turned to the others. "'I'll see how deep it is,' he said, and without the faintest hesitation dove flatly in. Oily ripples washed back, and they saw his head poke through, sputtering. "'Not deep,' he said. "'Chest high. Come on.' He reached for Sue, helped her down, and did the same for her father. Holding each by the hand, Sue's head barely above the water, he started across. They had not gone more than twenty feet when they heard Quade, left on the bank, give a hoarse yell of fear and dive into the water. Their dread pursuer had caught up with them. And it followed on the water. Phil had hoped it would not be able to cross, but once more the thing's astounding adaptability dashed his hopes. Without hesitation, the whitest jelly sprawled out over the water, rolling after them with ghastly, snake-like ripples, its pallid body standing out gruesomely against the black, odorous tide. Quade came up thrashing madly, some feet to the side of the other three. He was swimming, and swimming with such strength that he quickly left them behind. He would be across before they, and that meant there was a good chance that the earth borer would go up again with only one passenger. Phil fought against the water, pulling Sue and her father forward as best he could. From behind came the rippling sound of their shapeless pursuer. Ten feet more,' Holmes began, then abruptly stopped. There had been a swish, a ripple upstream, and as their heads turned, they saw the water part and a black head, long, evil, glistening, pointed coldly down to where they were struggling towards the shore. Phil Holmes felt his strength ooze out. He heard Professor Guinness gasp, "'A water snake!' Its head was reared above the surface, gliding down on them silently, leaving a wedge of long, sluggish ripples behind. When thirty feet away, the glistening head dipped under. A great half-circle of leg-thick body arched out. It was like an oily stream of curved cable. Then it ended in a pointed tail, and the creature was entirely underwater. With desperate strength, Phil hauled the girl to the bank, and standing in several feet of water, pushed her up. Then he whirled, and yanked old Guinness past him up into the hands of his daughter, with them safe, and Sue reaching out her hand for him, he began to scramble up himself. But he was too late. There was a swish in the water behind him, and toothless, hard-gummed jaws clamped tight over one leg, and drew him back and under, and with the touch of the creature's mouth, a stiff shock jolted him. His body went numb. His arms flopped limply down. He was paralyzed. Sue Guinness cried out. 
Her father stared helplessly at the spot where his young partner had disappeared, with so little commotion. "'It was an eel,' he muttered dully. "'Some kind of electric eel.' Phil dimly realized the same thing. A moment later his face broke the surface, but he could not cry out. He could not move his little finger. Only his involuntary muscles kept working, his heart and his lungs. He found he could control his breathing a little, and then he was wondering why he was remaining motionless on the surface. Gradually, he came to understand. He had not felt it, but the eel had let go its hold on his leg and had disappeared, but only for a moment. Suddenly, from somewhere near, its gleaming body writhed crazily, and a terrific twist of its tail hit Phil a glancing blow on the chest. He was swept under, and the water around him became a maelstrom. When next he bobbed to the tumultuous surface, he managed to get a much-needed breath of air, and in the swirling currents glimpsed the long, snake-like head of the eel go shooting by, with thin trickles of stuff that looked like white jelly clinging to it. That explained what was happening. The eel had been challenged by the amoeboid monster, and they were fighting for possession of him, the common prey. The water became an inferno of whipping and lashing movements, of whitish fibers and spearing thrusts of a glistening black electric body. Unquestionably, the eel was using its numbing electric shock on its foe. Time and time again Phil felt the amoeba grasp him, searingly, only to be wrenched free by the force of the currents the combat stirred up. Once he thudded into the bottom of the river, and his lungs seemed about to burst before he was again shot to the top and managed to get a breath. At last, the water quieted somewhat, and Phil, at the surface, saw the eel bury its head in a now apathetic mound of flesh. It tore a portion loose with savage jaws, a portion that still writhed after it was separated from the parent mass, and then the victor glided swiftly downstream and disappeared under the surface. Holmes floated helplessly on the inky water. He could see the amoeba plainly. It was still partly paralyzed, for it was very still. But then a faint tremor ran through it. A wave ran over its surface, and it moved slowly towards him once again. Desperately, Phil tried to retreat. The will was there, but the body would not work. Save for a feeble flutter of his hands and feet, he could not move. He could not even turn around to bid Sue and David Guinness goodbye with his eyes. Then a fresh, loved voice sounded just behind him, and he felt something tighten around his waist. "'It's all right, dear,' the voice called. "'Hang on. We'll get you out.' Sue was coming in after him. She had grasped the rope tied to his belt, and she and her father were pulling him back to the bank. He wanted to tell her to go back. The amoeba was only feet away, but he could only manage a little croak, and then he was safe up on the ledge at the other side of the river. A surge of strength filled his limbs, and he knew the shock was rapidly wearing off, but it was also wearing off of the monster in the water. Its speed increased. The ripplings of its amorphous body substance became quicker, more excited. It came on steadily. While it came, the girl and her father worked desperately over Phil, massaging his body and pulling him further up the bank. It had all but reached the bank when Holmes gasped, "'I think I can walk now. Where—' "'Where did Quade go to?' Guinness gestured over to the right, up a dim, winding passage through the rocks. "'Then we must follow. Fast!' Phil said, staggering to his feet. 
He may get to the sphere first. He'll go up by himself even yet. I'm all right. Despite his words, he could not run, and could only command an awkward walk. Sue lifted one of his arms around her shoulder, and her father took the other, and without a backward glance they labored ahead. But Phil's strength quickly returned, and they raised the pace until they had broken once more into a stumbling run. How far ahead James Quaid was, they did not know. But obviously they could follow where he had gone. Once again the draft was strong on their backs. They felt sure they were on the last stretch, headed for the earth borer, but unless they could overtake Quaid, he would be there first. They had no illusions about what that would mean. End of chapter 4 Recording by Jennifer Fournier, Centerville, Virginia, USA Astounding Stories, 16, April 1931, by Various Four Miles Within, Chapter 5 a death more hideous. Quade was there first. When they burst out of a narrow crevice, not far from the funnel-shaped opening they had originally entered, they saw him standing beside the open door of the sphere as if waiting. The searchlight inside was still on, and in its shaft of light they could see that he was smiling thinly, once more his old, confident self. It would only take him a second to jump in, slam the door, and lock it. He could afford a last gesture. The three stopped short. They saw something he did not. "'So,' he observed in his familiar, mocking voice. He paused, seeing that they did not come on. He had plenty of time. He said something else, but the two men and the girl did not hear what it was. As if by a magnet, their eyes were held by what was hanging above him, clinging to the lip of the hole the sphere had made in the ceiling. It was an amoeba another of those single-celled, protoplasmic mounds of flesh. It had evidently come down through the hole, and now it was stretching, rubber-like, lower and lower, a living, reaching stalactite of whitish hunger. Quade was all unconscious of it. His final words reached Phil's consciousness. "'And this time, of course, I will keep the top disintegrators on.' No other monster will then be able to weigh me down. He shrugged his shoulders and turned to the door, and that movement was the signal that brought his doom. Without a sound, the poised mass above dropped. James Quaid never knew what hit him. The heap of whitish jelly fell squarely. There was a brief moment of frantic lashing, of tortured struggles, then only tiny ripples running through the monster as it fed. Sue Guinness turned her head. But the two men, for some reason, could not take their eyes away. It was the girl's voice that jerked them back to reality. "'The other!' she gasped. "'It's coming! Behind!' They had completely forgotten the mass in the tunnel. Turning, they saw that it was only fifteen feet away and approaching fast, and instinctively they ran out into the cavern, skirting the sphere widely. When they came to Quade's wrecked borer, Phil— who had snatched a glance behind, dragged them down behind it, for he had seen their pursuer abandon the chase and go to share in the meal of its fellow. "'We'd best not get too far away,' he whispered. "'When they leave the front of the borer, maybe we can make a dash for it.' For minutes that went like hours, the young man watched, waiting for the creatures to be done, hoping that they would go away. Fortunately, the sphere lay between— and he was not forced to see too much. 
only one portion of one of the monsters was visible, lapping out from behind the machine. At last his body tensed, and he gripped Sue and her father's arm in quick warning. The things were leaving the sphere, or, rather, only one was, for Phil saw that they had agglutinated, merged into oneness, and now the monster that remained was the sum of the sizes of the original two, and more. They all watched, and they all saw the amoeba stop, hesitate for a moment, and come straight for the wrecked borer behind which they were hidden. "'Damn!' Phil whispered hoarsely. "'It's still hungry, and it's after us!' David Guinness sighed wearily. "'It's heavy and sluggish now,' he said. "'So maybe if we run again, though I don't know how I can last any longer.' Holmes did not answer. His eyes were narrowed. He was casting about desperately for a plan. He hardly felt Sue's light touch on his arm as she whispered, "'In case, Phil, in case this must be good-bye?' But the young man turned to her with gleaming eyes. "'Good-bye nothing,' he said. "'We've still got a card to play.' She stared at him, wondering if he had cracked from the strain of what he had passed through. But his next words assured her he had not. "'Go back, Sue,' he said levelly. "'Go far back.' We'll win through this yet. She hesitated, then obeyed. She crept back from the wrecked borer, back into the dim rear, eyes on Phil and the sluggish mass that moved inexorably towards him. When she had gone fifteen or twenty yards, she paused and watched the two men anxiously. Phil was talking swiftly to Professor Guinness. His voice was low and level, and though she could not hear the words, she could catch the tone of assurance that ran through them. She saw her father nod his head, and he seemed to make the gesture with vigor. "'I will,' she heard him say, and he slapped Phil on the back, adding, "'And for God's sake, be careful!' And with these words, the old man wormed inside Quade's wrecked borer and was gone from the girl's sight. She wanted desperately to run forward and learn what Phil intended to do, but she restrained herself and obeyed his order. She waited and watched, and saw the young man stand up, look at the slowly advancing monster, and deliberately walk right into its path. Sue could not move from her fright. In her daze, she saw Phil advance cautiously towards the amoeba and pause when within five feet of it. The thing stopped, remained absolutely motionless. She saw him take another short step forward. This time, a pseudopod emerged and slowly reached out for him. Phil avoided it easily but by so narrow a margin that the girl's heart stopped beating. Then she saw him step back, and, snail-like, the creature followed, pausing twice as if wary and suspicious. Slowly, Phil Holmes drew it after him. To Sue, who did not know what his plan was, it seemed a deliberate invitation to death. She forgot about her father, lying inside the mangled borer, waiting. She did not see that Phil was leading the monster directly in front of it. It was a grotesque, silent pursuit. The creature appeared to be unalert. Its movements were sloth-like, yet the girl knew that if Phil once ventured an inch too close, or slipped, or tried to dodge past it to the sphere, its torpidness would vanish, and it would have him. His maneuvering had to be delicate, judged to a matter of inches, tense with the suspense, the strain of the slow-paced seconds she watched, and yet hardly dared to watch, 
fearful of the awful thing she might see. It was a fantastic game of tag her lover was playing, with death the penalty for tardiness. The slow, enticing movements were repeated again and again, Phil advancing very close and stepping back in the nick of time. Always he barely avoided the clutching white arms that were extended, and little by little he decoyed the thing onward. Then came the end. As Holmes was almost in front of the wrecked machine, Sue saw him glance quickly aside, and, as if waiting for that moment when he would be off guard, the monster whipped forward in a great reaching surge. Sue's ragged nerves cracked. She shrieked. They had him. She started forward, then halted abruptly. With a tremendous leap, Phil Holmes had wrenched free and flung himself backwards. She heard his yell. Now! There was a sputter from the bottom of the outstretched borer. Then, like the crack of a whip, came a bellow of awful sound. A thick cloud of dust reared up, and the ear-numbing thunder rolled through the cavern in great pulsing echoes. And then Sue Guinness understood what the young man had been about. The disintegrators of James Quaid's borer had sent a broad beam of annihilation into the monster. His own machine had destroyed his destroyer, and given his intended victims their only chance to escape from the dread fate he had schemed for them. Sue could see no trace of the creature in its pyre of slow, swirling dust. Caught squarely, its annihilation had been utter. And then, through the thunder that still echoed in her eardrums, she heard a joyful voice, "'We got him!' Through the dusty haze, Phil appeared at her side. He flung his arms up exultantly, swept her off the ground, hugged her close. "'We got him!' he cried again. "'We're free! Free to go up!' David Guinness crawled from the borer. His face, for the first time since the descent, wore a broad smile. Phil ran over to him, slapped him on the back, and the older man said, "'You did it beautifully, Phil,' he turned to Sue. "'He had to decoy them right in front of the disintegrators. It was, well, it was magnificent. "'All credit to Sue. She was my inspiration,' Phil said, laughing. "'But now,' he added, Let's see if we can fix those dead rocket tubes. I have a patient up above. And anyway, I'm not over-fond of this place. The three had won through. They had blasted four miles down from the surface of the earth. The brain of an elderly scientist, the quick-witted courage of a young engineer, had achieved the seemingly impossible, and against obstacles that could not have been predicted. Death had attended that achievement, as death often does accompany great forward steps. James Quaid had gone to a death more hideous than he had devised for the others. But, in spite of the justice of it, a moment of silence fell on the three survivors as they came to the spot where his fate at last had caught up to him. But it was only a moment. It was relieved by Professor Guinness's picking up the chunk of radium ore his former partner had hewn from the cavern's walls. He held it up for all to see, and smiled. "'Here it is,' he said simply. Then he led the way into his earth borer, and the little door closed quietly and firmly into place. For a few minutes, slight tappings came from within, as if a wrench or a screwdriver were being used. Then the tapping stopped, and all was silence. A choke, a starting cough, came from beneath the sphere. A torrent of rushing sound burst out, 
and spears of orange flame spurted from the bottom and splashed up its sides, bathing it in fierce, brilliant light. It stirred. Then, slowly and smoothly, the great ball of metal raised up. It hit the edge of the hole in the ceiling and hung there, hesitating. Side rockets flared, and the sphere angled over. Then it slid, roaring through the hole. Swiftly, the spots of orange from its rocket tube exhausts died to pinpoints. There were now almost twenty of them, and soon these pinpoints wavered and vanished utterly. Then there was only blackness in the hole that went up to the surface. Blackness in the hole, calm night on the desert above, and silence, as if the cavern were brooding on the puny figures and strange machines that had for the first time dared invade its solitude in the realms four miles within the earth. End of chapter 5 End of Four Miles Within